Well, this morning, if you have a Bible, uh, I will invite you to open with me to John chapter 21. We are finally, is that the right word? We have made it to the end of the Gospel of John. We've been in in John now since, uh, since Easter, but we also, as a church, were working through the Gospel of John for about a year and a half uh, leading up to Christmas. And so we, we've come a long way. And what we saw, I think, I hope, through this trip is that the, the, the Gospel of John, this, this biography of Jesus, is, is a beautiful journey that we've, we've taken together. And within these pages, we were given everything that we needed to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and then by believing, we would have life in his name. That's, that's why John wrote. He, he helpfully gave us that as kind of his thesis statement at the end of chapter 20. And so this last chapter actually starts to tell us what this might look like, believing Jesus is the Son of God and having life in his name. And right away what we see is this, this belief is not just a one-and-done decision. It's not like how I uh, chose to put on socks this morning, and that's it. I, they're there till the end of the day. right? This, this decision to believe in Jesus affects everything else about us. Because believing Jesus means following him. It all started with an invitation in the, in the beginning pages of the gospel to, to come and see, which is exactly why we've called this series Come and See. It was Jesus' invitation to just, to just come and see what he was up to, how he did life, who he was, what he was doing, and the invitation was for, for anyone to come and, and, and track with him. But now in this chapter, Jesus gives another call. Twice here, he says, follow me. This is actually the the natural outworking of coming to see. You can't come and see and not follow Jesus. You can't come and see and believe in Jesus and not follow him. These fit together. And this is ultimately the message of the Gospel of John, that that Jesus is the promised Savior who comes and calls us away from a worldly life and calls us to follow him into eternal life. And so every one of us, as we get to the end of this Gospel, is left with a question. And it's both a simple question, but also the most important question in the world. Will I follow Jesus? And again, this last chapter starts to give us a picture of what it looks like to live our lives as followers of Jesus. And we'll kind of take it in four main chunks, and I was helped by a commentary that gave me kind of the overarching titles here. So what does it look like to follow Jesus? The first, our confidence won't be found in our own strength, but will be found in the sovereignty of Christ. Here's how we see that. This chapter opens with another story of Jesus appearing to his disciples. Chances are your Bible kind of has a little title on top of it there that says Jesus' third appearance to his disciples. Now it's fascinating. We've just come out of chapter 20 where Jesus has twice appeared to his disciples. He's come and said, peace be with you to them and and kind of given them what to do and, and what the future is. Yet they're still not totally sure. And so Peter suggests they go fishing. Now, a group of them head out onto the water to do what they know best. Remember, the majority or the bulk of the Gospels were fishermen. And they went out at night. They spent the whole night on the sea, and they came up empty-handed. And then at daybreak, 
They, they see someone on the shore, and we reading this know that it was Jesus, but they were told they didn't recognize it was Jesus. And he called out to the boat, and he said, Hey, you guys catch anything? Now, if I was on that boat, and I had just spent an entire night and come up completely empty, and some clown on the beach says, Hey, how'd it go out there, guys? I would be rolling myself down the beach to land somewhere else because I don't want anything to do with this. I'd be, I would be grumpy. I'd be upset. I would avoid everything. But then what does Jesus say? Hey, just, just throw your nets on the other side. If I'm not already rowing, this guy who's just decided to show up at breakfast time and said, hey, let me tell you how to do this, boys, I'm, I'm gonzo. But they are, I don't know, more mature than me or something. And they do. They throw their net on the other side of the boat. And we read that they pulled up a massive number of fish, 153 fish. And then they realize they've just spent the whole night and caught nothing. So they realize something's gone on here. And John especially points says, that's got to be Jesus. And Peter, our impulsive friend Peter, jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. And Jesus has breakfast ready for them. Now, what's the point of this fishing story? It seems a little bit out of place, right? Think of where we've just come in the last half of this book. We had chapters 13 to 17, which, which really the whole, that whole section focused on the last night that Jesus had with his disciples. He, he instructs them and he, he teaches them and he really unpacks who he is and what he's doing. And then chapter 17 itself is that Jesus' high priestly prayer where he prays for the disciples. And then in chapter 18 and 19, we see Jesus get arrested and betrayed in the crucifixion. Chapter 20, uh, the resurrection and, and his first couple appearances. And now, a fishing story. How does that fit? Well, let me suggest that, that this story is an important portrait for us. See, the disciples, they weren't hobby fishermen. This, this wasn't something they did when they, when they got off work, that they, they'd head down to the river and they'd throw a line in and just see what happens. These guys were professionals. This was how they made their livelihood. This is how they supported themselves and their families. And, and chances are they had been raised, basically, in fishing boats. It was their life. It was probably their dad's life. It was probably their grandparents' life. These guys knew fishing. And so imagine their frustration when they're out the whole night and they get skunked. And some guy on the beach says, throw the nets off the other side of the boat. Well, they listen and they pull in this massive catch, a miraculous catch, and the only explanation they can have for it is that must be Jesus. It's a great story, and it is a great picture of what it looks like for us to follow Jesus. We cannot, we cannot do it on our own. It doesn't matter how gifted we are or aren't. It doesn't many, matter how experienced we are. It doesn't matter how strong we are. We aren't able to follow Jesus apart from his working in our lives. And Jesus told us as much back in chapter 15. In chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Lots of good things come out of that. Because you can do what without me? Nothing. When we strive to follow him and strive to serve him just by kind of mustering up all the effort, our own effort that we can, it's like that night the disciples spent fishing and came up with nothing. Pastor commentator Kent Hughes says, serving Christ in our own strength, trying to do it our own way, is like going after Moby Dick with a pickle fork. 
Another writer says, if you make instant gratification your ultimate goal, you can succeed in your own strength. No one can stop you from earning a gold medal in self-promotion. On the other hand, if you want to give up your personal comfort for someone else's eternal good, your effort is not enough. If you want to be a godly wife and contented mother, you will fail in your own strength. Happy Mother's Day. If you desire victory over that area of sin that constantly plagues you, your best intentions will fall short. Anyone identify with that? All the good you do will be empty and short-lived apart from the effective power of Jesus Christ working in and through you. So here's why we have the fishing story. Because with Jesus, we don't need to rely on our own strength any longer if we follow him. He will provide what we need when we need it. There's a reason they didn't catch any fish that night. It's so that Jesus' power could be demonstrated to them. But think about that. When they probably looked back when they got to the shore and realized it was Jesus and were having breakfast, maybe they looked back at the night and realized there was a reason. Jesus took care of this because Jesus can do these things so that we would recognize that we have to rely on him. But imagine when they're out there on the boat and the nets come up empty again and again and again and again. Do you think they realized that this was going to be a teachable moment that Jesus would use to, to remind them of his power? No, I'm sure they didn't. So you and I, we can experience seasons and, and long seasons even of frustrations that are, that are leading us towards something greater than we can imagine. When we're following Jesus, there might be days or, or weeks or even months, maybe even years where it feels like just we keep failing and falling and there's no fish coming up and there's still no fish coming up. We might be following him and, and doing everything he says and we're trying to do the best we can and listen to him as best we can, yet we're still not able to see the purpose of this hard time that we're going through. In fact, it might not be until much later where we see how God was using this season to shape us into who he needs us to be. And you know what? Maybe sometimes we won't ever find out until we get to go be with him. But the thing is, in those times, when struggles hit... How we deal with it reveals what's, what's in our heart and what we're putting our trust into as well. The disciples, their worlds were all over the place. They'd seen Jesus a couple times at least, so maybe some pieces were coming together. But when they didn't know what to do, when they didn't know how to handle this next phase, they went fishing. This is what I know. This is where I feel competent. This is where I feel in control. So I'm going back out on the water. Let me ask this. What is it for you? When you head into a season of frustration where it seems like things should be going well, but they're not, what do you turn to? Do you pour yourself into work? Do you endlessly scroll social media so you don't have to think about whatever that difficult thing is? Do you turn to, to food or drink or relationships? What do you turn to? Jesus used this night for the disciples of them getting skunked on the water to teach them an essential lesson. That following him meant that their confidence couldn't be in their own strength, but it has to come from him. Once they get back, 
we see that Jesus had breakfast set up for the disciples. And after breakfast, the scene in chapter 21 kind of focuses in on just Jesus and Peter. Of all the disciples, some days Peter's my favorite because I can identify with him maybe the most. Peter seems to be the one most willing to just act on impulse. He, he has so much confidence that in that first thought that pops into his mind, he will do funny things, he will say silly things, he does all the things. And he seems to have the most confidence, at least as we can read, out of any of the disciples that, that he can just get by by his own work, by his own talents, by his own efforts. He just feels like he's good. There's no doubt in his mind that he can accomplish whatever he sets his mind to. It never seems to dawn on him that he was, in fact, imperfect. That he had faults and failures. Until that night, Jesus got arrested. Just hours before the arrest, you remember the story, Jesus and Peter were talking, and Peter promised that he would never abandon Jesus. He even sets himself apart from the rest of the disciples. Even if they leave you, Lord, I never will. All of that pride, ego, a little bit of arrogance. I want to be careful when you talk about a biblical character. All these things come crashing down after Jesus' arrest. We read that, that Peter had found his way into the courtyard where, where the proceedings were happening with Jesus, trying to see what was going on, trying to at least sort of be close. But he would deny even knowing Jesus three times, just like Jesus had told him that he would. Again, only a couple of hours earlier. Remember, Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. So imagine the way that rooster sounded. And imagine the way every single rooster crowing every single day after that moment sounded to Peter. I would bet it was just another dagger to the heart. Luke's gospel tells us that after Peter denied Jesus the third time, the rooster crowed, and then he and Jesus locked eyes. I can't even imagine. Luke writes that, that Peter went outside and wept bitterly. He was broken in that moment. Everything came crashing down for Peter. He thought he was strong enough to hold it all together, but he was not. Now, I'm going to guess that every one of us has had a moment like this where it feels like our whole worlds are crashing down around us as if everything we've, we've set up for ourselves or everything that we, we thought was good and, and right and true just fell down like a house of cards or a, or a Jenga tower at the end of the game. But you know what? We actually all need this from time to time. We need to know that we won't find our, our lasting comfort from our own good works, from our own morality, from our own being able to build this tower just so. But our comfort is in the mercy of Christ. Here's the beautiful thing we read in this passage. Jesus doesn't leave Peter broken, does he? He restores him. There's a, there's a lot of ways that we could get into, but we won't necessarily this morning. A lot of ways that Jesus here is, is recreating the scene where Peter denied him. For instance, there's only twice in John's gospel where a, a charcoal fire is mentioned. Right here in verse 9. And then where Jesus was denied by Peter. 
And again, I bet every rooster crow was like a knife to the heart. I bet every, every smell of charcoal, which would have been everywhere, would have flooded Peter's memories to that night where he denied Jesus. And here we are around the fire again. And as they sit, Jesus looks at Peter and asks him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Once for every denial. This, this is the mercy of Jesus at work. This is Jesus meeting Peter in the midst of his biggest mess. And Jesus can meet us too, right in the heart of our ugliest moments. He does. And look at this section. Look at verses um, 15 through 19. As you give it a bit of a skim, how much work does Peter have to do to be restored? Does Jesus say, okay, Peter, you need to say these things, pray these things, do these efforts, and then we can be good again. Did any of that show up? Nothing. Peter has to do nothing. Jesus had already done all the work. Jesus had atoned for Peter's failure. Peter just received mercy. I was having a conversation this week, and, and I shared with uh, some friends that uh, I often have a time, uh, a hard time feeling like I, I measure up. I don't know what it is. And there's always somebody that I can look and say, my life should be more like that in that area or whatever else. And one of these guys, I, I kind of got reacquainted with him. We met 20 years ago, and then all of a sudden we're on Zoom together this week again. And he was so gracious, and he heard my story and, and heard what was going on. And he said, so, okay, Sean, what's good enough? If you've got this standard, okay, what is it? And I was caught. I didn't have an answer. But as I thought and, and as I reflected, okay, so what, what, would, what am I saying by all this? Ultimately, my answer was perfection. That's the standard. And again... So gracious. Okay, Sean, so how's that going for you? Like, are you ever going to get there? And, and it, was, it was just the, the, the processing was like, of course I can't get there. I know that. But for right here, it wasn't, it wasn't there that day. And I share this just to say that I can be a lot like Peter in the sense that when, when times get tough, I'm, I'm, let's go fishing. Not me. I'm not actually going to go fishing, but I've got my own fishing type things, right? I can tend to overly rely on my own gifts and skills and ability to go back where I'm most comfortable and feel most safe or whatever it is. But this week in this conversation, I think I got a really similar message to Peter, and hopefully it sticks. The message is this, that Jesus has paid it all, and he wants to just lavish his grace and his mercy on us. Matt Carter writes that the street sign hanging over the path that Jesus calls us to walk does not say morality, as in be good, do good, then you can walk this way. Instead, it says mercy. Jesus' mercy is our comfort. And when we fail, and we will fail, his mercy will restore us. The Puritan preacher Richard Seib says, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. I'm going to say that again because it's important and may deserve an amen. Help me out here. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Amen. Amen. Sometimes we might not outright say it, but sometimes we act like we don't believe that, right? Jesus has enough for, for their sin, but 
I'm a disaster. More mercy in Christ than sin in us. So our comfort won't be in our own morality, our own works, our own goodness, but in the mercy of Christ. Then Jesus doesn't just restore Peter, does he? he? He gives him again a mission, something to devote his life to. Three times he tells Peter to feed and to tend his sheep. We know that this is a, a metaphor that Jesus has used before. Back in chapter 10, we see that Jesus' sheep are those who believe in him, those who follow him. So he says, Peter, take care of the flock. You're, this is your job now. And similarly, we too, when we put our faith in Jesus and believe in him, we are united with him and we are united with others who have done the same thing. We are ushered into a community of faith. There's, there's no such thing as just me and Jesus' faith. That's not a thing. That's a, that's a corruption of a, a Western, North American idea of individualism that's been read into the Bible. But we are called to community, a community of faith. Our, our natural tendency is towards being selfish, to think about me, to do what's best for me, to make sure that my needs are met, all these things. But when we follow Jesus, our commitment won't be for our own priorities, but to the cross of Christ. When we follow Jesus, our priorities are for him. That means the way we look at life is radically changed. Instead of doing what many around us tell us, to, to look after yourself and set yourself up well and, and, and serve yourself, we instead serve others and we serve the church. Our focus goes from being internal to external. And when we follow Jesus, there are plenty and plenty of ways to serve our brothers and sisters, to, to help also feed and tend the sheep. Here's a couple. Again, there's probably a dozen more. But here, we'll start with just these. The first thing we want to learn and to remember is that the sheep, they're Jesus' sheep. They're not Peter's sheep. They're not my sheep. They're not your sheep. They're Jesus' sheep. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the one that we follow. His instructions are the ones that we obey. And the faithfulness of a shepherd as one tending the sheep, as Peter's being called to here, is measured in how faithful he is to following Jesus and to the word of God. So the sheep are Jesus. Jesus' is sheep. It's tricky there. The second thing, the sheep need to be on a strict diet of Scripture. Only God's word will bring growth. Peter would later write, and this, I love this about Peter. We get to watch him be plucked out of a fishing boat at the beginning of the Gospels. We get to see him fail again and again and miss the mark again and again. We get to see him just absolutely crushed at the arrest of Jesus, restored here. And then we get to see the Holy Spirit do such amazing things in his life through the book of Acts and then the letters that he wrote as well. Love it. Peter would later write in 1 Peter chapter 2, so like newborn infants, he says, desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow into your salvation. We need the word. We need scripture to help us grow. The sheep, we also meet together to feed on God's word. That's, that's why we gather to hear from God. It's not so that Vern can sing a couple of songs and, and I can talk for a while and then we can get on our merry way, but we want to hear from the Lord and from his word when we gather. And the sheep need to keep on growing. We need to constantly be growing. If we're being fed by the word of God, by a shepherd, someone who's tending the sheep, feeding the sheep, like Peter was called to, you will see the effects of that. When you eat, you grow. That's a physical reality. That's a spiritual reality. Now, if you're only eating one meal a week, Sunday morning from 11 to 12, 
Growth is tricky, shall we say. So let me ask you, are you feeding on God's word yourself as well? Now, Peter here being commissioned and sent again, he was someone who could, who could bring God's grace to others because he had experienced it so fully in his own life. Jesus restored him, and Peter experienced the mercy of Christ firsthand. If we go out and try to do good things for God by our own gifts and talents and, and goodness, it may look okay for a while, but ultimately it will not go well. But when we love and minister to one another and serve one another and care for one another and pray for one another and all the one another's in the New Testament, when we do that from a place of recognizing that I am imperfect, I am one broken sinner trying to help another broken sinner find their way to be more like Jesus, that's when things can really happen. So when we gather on Sundays, when we bump into one another during the week, when we send texts or FaceTime or anything, we receive God's mercy. We remind one another of the grace found in Jesus. We walk together to Jesus and we head to him for healing and we feast on the word of God. The last section here shows us that, that our commitment will not be to our own comfort, but to the cross of Christ. We're in the last five, six verses here. When Jesus came to earth, his mission went straight through the cross. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that we might end up the same place. That's what Jesus was telling Peter in verses 18 and 19. There was a day coming that Peter would be bound, taken against his wishes, and killed. We need to realize that there is a very real possibility that we will suffer for the sake of the gospel. And it won't look the same for each one of us. It doesn't look the same for every follower of Jesus in different places around the world. But if we follow Jesus, it will cost us something in some way. And the only way that we can prepare ourselves for that is to view suffering from God's perspective. When Jesus looked at his mission, the cross wasn't the end of it. He knew he had to go through that to get to where he needed to be. And this is a hard thing to do. It's hard for us to, to try to look at potential suffering and instead of consider, again, myself, my comforts, my wants, my needs, to see through it and trust that God's going to use it. So we can look at this passage with Peter and Peter's life going forward as well, and we can debunk at least a few of the common myths about suffering. And the first one is this, myth, myth number one. For a mature believer, suffering is easy. Now, if, my, if my faith was just strong enough, this would be easy peasy, no problem, I'd get right through it. Look what Jesus says to Peter in verse 18, that he would be carried away where he didn't want to go. I would suggest that following this moment with Jesus, and as we watch Peter's life, he could be a mature believer. We could probably call him that, right? But does being carried away where you don't want to go sound easy? I, I don't think so. Peter would later write to Christians, and we'll get to this passage in a minute, he warned them not to be surprised by the, fiery or, by the fiery ordeal. Those are really strong words. That doesn't sound light or easy or breezy, a fiery ordeal that you have to go through. So the, the gospel, it doesn't minimize suffering, but it helps us to see the ultimate eternal purpose and give us then the strength to endure suffering because it's not about that, it's about Jesus. 
The second myth, the amount we suffer is based on our behavior. Now, when we read this interaction of Jesus and Peter, and Jesus says, okay, Peter, someday your life is going to be asked of you for following me. What's Peter's first response? He's still impulsive, Peter, here. I love it. What about John? What, what about him? Don't make me do this on my own. Sometimes we do that ourselves, don't we? We look at our circumstances and we say, how come they have it so easy? Why, why isn't this thing harder for them to get through? Sometimes we even look at it legalistically. I, I deserve this because I know that I've sinned, but that guy's way worse than me. How come? Why me? So often we say that suffering isn't fair. We learn this. I don't know where we learn this from, but this starts at a young age, right? If you've got young kids around the house, it's not fair. But if we're honest, we don't want fair, do we? Because fair means that you and I have to pay for our sins ourselves. Fair means eternal separation from God. Jesus' death on the cross was not fair for him. He did not deserve that. But as we view suffering, no matter what, we remember that God is in control, God is gracious, and somehow this is part of his plan. Which is actually myth number three. And the myth says that God isn't in control of suffering. This is probably one of the most dangerous myths about suffering. And it, it, the, the logic goes like this. Suffering is a result of sin. Okay, take that, no problem. Uh, second, God doesn't sin. Okay, suffering is part of sin, God doesn't sin. Okay, I'm on board so far. Therefore, suffering is outside of God's control. You can kind of see how that might work, right? If you think about it for less than about a minute. It might seem logical, but that, that progression does not hold weight when you actually look at Scripture. In verse 22, Jesus says, you know what? Whatever happens to John, that's part of his, Jesus' will for John's life. It's, it's not that God is not in control. It's that God can and will use these things. Similarly, Jesus says that Peter's suffering will be part of his will as well, God's will. See, God has a plan for all the things we go through even suffering. It's not meaningless. It's not random. It's not out of his control. Now, we may not understand it, but we should never doubt that there's more going on than just what we can see with our own perspective. Again, listen to what the older, wiser Peter wrote as he was instructing his suffering sheep. This is 1 Peter 4. Starting at verse 12, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Don't be surprised that this is going to happen. This is part of it, he says. But instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. So then, down in verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will, suffer according to God's will, entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. Don't be surprised by suffering, but trust God through it. Peter lived this out. We watched 
we watch him live this out the rest of his days. He entrusted his soul to his faithful creator. History does tell us that, that Jesus' prophecy in this passage, that Jesus will be, or Peter will be bound and taken where he doesn't want to go and killed, it came true. Tradition tells us he was crucified and crucified upside down because he didn't find himself worthy to be crucified the same way that Jesus was, which that's commitment there. But that means for somewhere around 30 years, Peter faithfully followed Jesus with the words, someday you're going to die for me, in the back of his head. Peter was committed to the cross, not to his own comfort. Well, as we wrap this up, the Christian life in, in one sense is difficult, but in another, it's, it's really simple. It's difficult because we live in a broken world, and I don't need to describe to you why that makes the Christian life difficult. But it's simple because Jesus boils down the whole thing to two words. Follow me. That's it. Now, sometimes we'll follow Jesus to the mountaintops. We'll feel so close to God and so close to heaven. It feels like we're already there right now and everything's going well and, and all the charts are up and to the right like they're supposed to and just everything's great. And we will follow him through those times sometimes. But other days, he'll lead us to the hard times, the suffering. Psalm 23 comes to mind. But even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what comes next? You're with me. You comfort me. Wherever we are, on the mountaintop or down in the valley, the question, though, is always the same. Will we follow Jesus? Let me pray, uh, and then we'll move to the communion table together. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the gospel of John. Thank you that in these 21 chapters, John has given us everything we need to, to believe that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and to find life. I pray that you would stir in our hearts and draw our hearts to you again this morning. When we have the, the, the choice between life and, and death in front of us, that we would, we would choose life. We would choose to follow you. I pray, Jesus, that you would give us the, the courage, your courage, the, your strength, your boldness to endure sufferings, to endure hard times, and still be able to make much of you. I pray that when, when we are struggling, when we are suffering, that we, it wouldn't cause us to, to turn our backs on you, but it would instead cause us to lean in and cling to promises like this where, where you say, I will be with you. I, I, I will not leave you or forsake you. I, I'm here. And Jesus, as we take communion together, we remember that, that you have come and you have done everything so that Life is not fair, and we don't get what our, our sin, our disobedience, our rebellion deserve. But instead, as we read at the top of the service in that Isaiah 53 passage, that you have made us righteous by your work on the cross. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.